do you live your life like tomorrow matters? Perhaps you're already growing food, consuming less, connecting with your community. Perhaps you're already thinking hard, keen to see the world a little slower, greener, healthier. But where to begin? Here on the Future Studying Podcast, we dig deep into the hearts and minds of blissfully normal people doing bloody amazing things, unearthing their moments of contradiction, their hopes and fears for the future, and what galvanises them to action, in the name of inspiring all of us to do a little more in shaping a better future today. I'm Katie. And I'm Jade. And this is Future Studying. So we've got Charlie McGee from Formidable Vegetable. And I don't know whether or not you've tap danced your way around the state or the country with him, but I've certainly been at a couple of gigs where I have danced like I honestly feel like I'm 12 again. I have not danced and laughed and felt as invigorated by someone's music as I do when I'm tapping around to you. But um, you guys were on the road for six years and I, I guess the thing about you guys is that you take these really what could be fairly dry concepts that are the permaculture principles and you give them this heartbeat and you turn them into conversations about minimising waste, finding slow solutions, you know, the art of observation, worm farms, compost, all that good stuff. Um, and I, I guess you might not run with this, but I reckon it comes down to your talent for wordsmithing to turn those really hard conversations into catchy, hummable tunes with an utterly infectious energy like even just chatting with you before we press record your energy is is high so I can only imagine what life in your little tiny house is like um with Brenna but you know we all need a little bit of that in our lives um so you're originally from WA but you're now based in Central Vic at Meliodora which is the property that Dave Holmgren and Sue Dennett uh, own and you are in that tiny house with Brenna I understand you've retrofitted your bus to run on biodiesel and that recently you've signed to a record label and you're not far off presenting at a TEDx panel alongside Brenna. Who you this afternoon, actually. Is it the Salvo? Yeah, straight after this. Oh, you are in demand. And I guess Brenna's doing that with you? Yes. So listeners might remember that Brenna was our second um, pod that we did ever in series one. And actually, she's probably up there with our most listened to pod. So we love all things Brenna Quinlan. So you guys are a bit of a bit of a um, hero duo for us. Uh, and then you guys together founded the Grow It, or the Grow Do It Permaculture Education Facebook page. So you've kind of got a whole lot of stuff going on. Um, and we just want to talk to you about all things you, really. Look, it's um yeah, you're right. It's it's been it's it's been an interesting time. It's been like a super energizing and creative time for me. And living with Brenna, you know, the energy is bouncing around the tiny house, you know, four by eight meter walls on a regular basis with art and music and education ideas. And it's just it's just a really good time for coming up with new ideas of how to live in this world really <laughs> i feel like permaculture for me permaculture's always had a lot of the answers to that you know I, I always refer to it as as advanced common sense or you know common sense that isn't necessarily common anymore and and that you know in the sense of the commons as in like the collective shared uh community that you know we, we kind of aspire to get back to but also just stuff that makes sense and um that's what gets me excited and gets me out of bed in the morning and Whatever direction that takes, I'm I'm never quite sure because I'm quite, <laughs> as as you know, quite a quite a muppet. Um, 
but yeah, music is a great outlet and and yeah, wordsmithing and coming up with funny, fun, little accessible ways to get some maybe slightly more advanced and and squiggly concepts out there is just a challenge that I love. And um, yeah, it's it's been a great um, little synergy with Brenna as well because that's exactly what she does with her art. So having this little artistic musical exactly bubble exactly what she does so through she the lockdown has been yeah. perfect. Yeah, yeah. And how did you come across permaculture, Talia? Like, what's your backstory? How did you become this radical vegetable that you are today? A radical vegetable. <laughs> I actually was. I'm I'm second gen. Um, my dad actually uh, started practicing or dabbling in permaculture um, in his sort of late twenties, I guess, when when he bought our block of land in WA, and you know he wanted to do the whole off grid, self sufficient, um, you know, living in the bush thing, and so sort of a combination of aspiring to those permaculture ethics and and um just financial situation really led to led to us living in a, a mud brick shed for about five years while I was a kid. And um, you know, so dad made the bricks himself from the from the mud that, you know, we had on the property and he got a few from a local mud brick maker as well. And um, you know, foraged around at the tip for for recycled materials that at the time were abundant you know you could go and get massive timber that were from a demolition site or something that people had just thrown out and windows and roofing materials so I basically cobbled together this little little hut that we lived in and um it was great and as a kid I didn't know any different it was just like oh well I guess this is what people do they live in huts in the bush (laughs) and so um yeah it was home and it was it was a really cozy home it was actually not much it's about the same size as the home I'm currently residing in. So, you know, it set up a set up a life to, lifelong trend of living in tiny spaces. But Are you shorter to accommodate these spaces? Have no, I'm quite tall. I always bump my head coming upstairs into the loft in front of tiny house. But, um, yeah, no, you, you do get used to it. And that's the thing that I realised was that, you know, as a kid, just accepting this stuff as normal and then moving to the city later where everyone's just so accustomed to like, you know, modern living and, uh, you know, having pristine perfection, having electricity and water and these kind of luxuries running out of the tap, like just taken for granted. And I thought, wow, you know, people are so lucky. But what I realized is that, well, you know, this is, this is a quote unquote normal life, but, but obviously having a not so normal life isn't entirely impossible. Because I mean, I survived, and so after a few years of kind of living that, you know, living the life of luxury in the city, and you know, my little rental duplex in the suburbs, <laughs> you know, with a TV and all kinds of mod cons, I was just sort of like a bit over it, and uh, and was like, well, you know what? Actually, all the stuff that I sort of just took for granted as a kid makes makes a bit of sense, and um, yeah, so permaculture didn't really enter back into the scene until until my late twenties, actually, when I decided that look that's it. I've got to go and study this. There's something more here than just a coffee table book on my dad's shed, you know, lounge room floor. <laughs> uh, so I went out and studied permaculture and, uh, and it just sort of vindicated uh, the rest of my upbringing, I suppose. Yeah. And you didn't have a period of kind of resentment because I know a lot of people we chat to have that um, maybe concern, maybe just a latent theory that their kids are going to go in in the complete opposite consumerist direction from their very principled start in life. Did you feel like it was kind of daggy that you lived in that way as a kid or you just 
like you said, took it for granted. Yeah, no, I guess it was not so much resentment, more just, I mean, my parents are too cool to, to ever have rebelled against, you know. I'm, I hope they're listening to this. But <laughs> well, like, we'll make sure we tap them. Yeah, but, but no, I did kind of see it as a bit of a daggy, like, dad thing, like, oh, gardening again, like, that's so daggy. You know, I, I was never really into it as a kid. But, you know, he, dad was very persistent and kind of he'd be like, come on, son, come and plant corn with me, you know. And, uh, and, and I loved the chickens. I'd hang out with the chickens all the time because we didn't have a TV growing up. So all I had was chickens. And, you know, there is so much entertainment you can get from watching a chicken for hours, especially as a kid. And when they have babies at this time of year, when they have little baby chicks, you can just like yeah. hang out with them and watch them peeping around. And it's so cool. But, um, it's so cool. We had 30 yeah. kids at the at the farm here yesterday and we've got a whole stack of chickens on tap at the moment. And seriously, oh. they were our gate. They're like a gateway drug. to They are. They really are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Get a baby chicken <laughs> and you'll have permy kids just coming you out of your eyes. You fully have permy kids, yeah. <laughs> I don't know that we'll make money out of that, but we'll give that a crack. Yeah. And so, so Charlie, you then you then took to combining some great loves. Obviously, music was something that you had uh, been doing for a long time, and you were bloody good at. And with you then kind of overlaid it with these more complicated concepts of um, how we need to live in the world that we live in. And did you feel like you immediately were able to connect with an audience who it resonated with, or did you feel like there was a bit of a push? I I expected more of a push, but surprisingly, there wasn't. Uh, in fact, mm. that, that was, I remember some of my first gigs, I was so nervous because I was like, oh my God, I feel like I'm coming out as a hippie, you know, like taking these <laughs> radical <laughs> concepts to like the mainstream music scene. And I, I'd been playing in bands for, you know, 15 years, just, just as a drummer, you know, rocking out in pubs and whatever. And I thought, oh no, now I'm actually going with something meaningful. People are going to hate it. And uh, I remember one of my first ever gigs, it was an open mic night, actually. It wasn't even a gig. Um, and I thought I'd get up and test out some of the permaculture songs. And I was just, uh, it was in this northern suburbs, Perth pub that's, you know, just sort of, you know, there are a lot of high-vis vests kicking around and sort of blokey chat at the bar. And I, I'm getting up there saying, so guys, uh, there's this thing called permaculture. And, you know, I had my little spiel before the song and then I played a couple of tunes and I was I was sort of pushing the fact, you know, like, hey, the world's got some issues and we've got to get on top of them. Like, what do you reckon? Uh, you know, all the while very conscious that I'm speaking to a predominantly mining company uh, employee fan <laughs> audience. Um, <clears throat> but at the end, you know, I expected some some blokes to come and be like, hey, mate, what are you on about? You know, so, you know, that mining's great or, you know, what are you, you having a go or something? But um, it was overwhelmingly positive. And these, you know, they, even some of these bolshy blokes came up, they're like, oh, yeah, mate, this song's about gardening. Like, I've never heard anything like that before. I'm going to go give it a go, eh? And they were... Um, they were actually inspired by it. I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. And so I just kind of, I kind of took the direction then to be like, all right, I'm just going to see how far I can push this. And we ended up just, just kind of saying yes to every and any gig that we could get at the very beginning. And that, that's what led to the six or seven years on the road touring. Wow. So that wasn't intentional. That was just, that just kind of evolved. No, that was literally just like, right, tour de force, let's go. And, um, when you have Mal Webb in your band, that's uh, that's a very easy thing to start and not so easy to stop. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so we just kind of took it anywhere we could and it ended up at places like Glastonbury and, you know, these crazy dance music festivals where I was like, I would never have expected this to work 
in this setting. Yeah, and it just <laughs> rocked. Yeah, yeah. So I do have to ask, you've claimed before that David Holmgren didn't cringe once. Is that true? <laughs> that, that was the first feedback I got um, when I played David the, the album. And uh, I was stoked, but he's since given much better feedback than that. Yeah, yeah. Now that he's you're a... living on his property, does he give a little more critical response? Oh, look, Dave's great. And um, it's been such a privilege to be able to live and work with him over the past few months. I mean, I've kind of been working with him remotely by proxy, you know, as as formidable vegetable, but to actually be living at Meliodora with Brenna and Dave and Sue and getting a an on-the-ground kind of just hands in the dirt experience of doing permaculture with David Holmgren, you know, the, the co-originator of the permaculture movement is just really puts it into, into perspective. And he's, you know, he, he loves having us around as well. He's kind of, you know, he sees us as sort of a, a youthful succession of the permaculture movement or something like he, he's, he gets this sort of dreamy look in his eye <laughs> when he, um, when he talks about the young radical folks and he, he sort of, you know, I feel like a bit of a layabout sometimes. I'm like, I'm just, I'm just writing music and doing art. But you know, we get out in the garden and and do work. But he, he's very forgiving. He's just sort of like, yes, take the word out to the people and and yeah. um. Well, he was an academic, know, right? And so now he's kind of hmm. he's taken this academic concept and he's handed it to the next generation who are turning it into really bite-sized, hummable, toe-tapping, chewable kind of experiences that people can actually access and do something and not be intimidated by. And that's exactly the reason that I I started writing songs about his book. So the first album is just about the 12 permaculture principles from his book, Principles and Pathways. And I I remember reading it just after I'd finished my permaculture design course um, and being like, wow, this stuff is so good, but so dense. And I knew (laughs) that, you know, most of the population who weren't actively studying permaculture w- wouldn't get to read something like that. And I was like, but, but this stuff is so important. How can we get it out there in a more accessible way? And that's when, well, a friend actually suggested that I write songs about it on a ukulele. And I thought it was the stupidest idea that anyone had ever had. I was like, who's going to want to listen to that? But <laughs> she was very pushy. And, uh, and so that, that kind of pushed me in the direction of writing uh, my first song about um, no such thing as waste, which is on the, the mm. produce no waste principle. And which then that kind of no just word for word. All three of my kids have been humming that since they were in nappies oh, and every one of them knows it word for word. And if any one of us gets it in our head, by the end of the day, inevitably the rest of us are tapping around to it. It turned into such an earworm. And at first I thought, this is so annoying. This is going to be the most annoying <laughs> song in the universe. But everyone in my permaculture course just kept requesting that I play it again and again. And after a while I thought, hey, actually – whatever, you know, sure, it's an annoying song, but it's working. And the the fact that it helped me to remember the permaculture principles was good enough. And the fact that it was inspiring the class to kind of also do it, I was like, hey, there's something in this. So yeah, yeah, finding that way of synthesizing complex ideas into popular culture soon became the mission, I guess, to Mm -hmm. to try and Mm -hmm. do on mass. Yeah. And I saw a post from you um, 
on your Instagram feed. Yes, when I was stalking you, okay, we have to research our interviewees. But um, <laughs> it was you, your the tiny house and Brenna, and your your caption was gorgeous. It was like, how did I get so lucky with this awesome house and this babe on my arm and this amazing place? And I really loved the sense of like all pervasive gratitude that you're expressing for your lot in life. And I wonder, do you mm. feel like you've kind of landed or do you feel that itchy kind of grating feeling that I know a lot of people have like oh, there's more that I have to do or there's more there's somewhere else I should be like do you feel in your groove I feel pretty in my groove right now um it's just been unbelievably fortuitous circumstances especially given the lockdown situation here in Victoria and you know the, the pandemic around the world like I just just keep counting my blessings every day and but there has been this element of like, you know, going from just nonstop relentless touring. And we stopped, we stopped flying internationally um, a year ago after I pledged to, to just, you know, not take flights for tours anymore because of the, the ecological footprint. But even then, um, jumping in the truck and, uh, you know, I converted a, a fire truck to run on waste vegetable oil and decided to tour around Australia and that. But even that was such a rapid pace. It just kind of didn't slow me down and it's taken a pandemic to lock me down in one place to actually be like oi chill out I'm like don't go anywhere and right now you know it's it's really hard being away from home and WA is a long way away and even further away when there's two closed borders between between me and it um and so yeah it's it's been an interesting time because there is this there is this overwhelming joy and this gratitude that just keeps bursting forth but there's also and I'm sure a lot of people at the moment have been feeling this, whether it's about, you know, lockdown or social distancing or, or just the ecological and, and climate crisis is this sense of grief as well. And I've actually started exploring that in some, in, in another project that I'm working on, just as a way to kind of get some balance, you know, because I'm, I'm such a sort of buoyant and positive person most of the time, but everyone's got that side of themselves that, that, that needs to come out. That's this like, sort of grieving for the world or, or even personal stuff. And um, I've really been looking into that uh, idea about joy and grief being two sides of the same coin. And in, in order to have one, you have to have the other. And I suppose it's it's just a sort of insight that I've been getting recently, but it's it's really been interesting to go into it and and find that balance. And through, And again, music has been a great vehicle for that. So I've I haven't released it yet, but I've I've just created a new project called Not Just Charlie, because um, you know it's not all about me. But uh, <laughs> but that's um that's totally different from Formidable Vegetable. And after after seven years of like, hey kids, let's get out into the garden, it's a bit more like, okay, let's have a look at this stuff happening in the world and how do we feel about it, you know? So um, and are you making reference there to sort of some of those deeper cultural complexities? that we need to unpick to understand better to then kind of move forward on? Yeah, cultural and like the universal and the personal. I mean, I I see a pretty strong link, you know, that they both affect each other. And so, you know, things happening out there in the world, like social movement, you know, like the Black Lives Matter stuff or the climate crisis or just politics, anything to do with politics or um, you know, that brings up a lot of stuff for people and for me personally, which then plays out in my life. And and 
as conversely, I think that the personal can be political. And that, that's sort of the undercurrent yeah. of my music is that, you know, even in the positive, happy, formidable vegetable stuff, the underlying message is, hey, we can do something about this. Let's get out and make change. And um, Yeah, we've got to own you know, this. We've got to stop pointing the finger but own it ourselves and what are the things we yeah, can do. Yeah, yeah. And definitely, you know, for a for a mass market, for a global market, the positive message is way more effective than like let's all wallow in misery. But um, I don't see it. I don't see the other side of it as being wallowing. I see it as this this sort of need for a healthy outlet. You know, it's like the like the angsty teenager cranking Nirvana or you know whatever angsty teenagers crank these days um, <laughs> to like let out that rah that you know just big body of of energy that that lives in them to kind of just get it out there so it's not it's not in them anymore and i think finding healthy ways to do that puts us in a position to make the positive changes in the world that we so desperately need and i think ignoring it um kind of is to our peril you know like if if we just sort of say everything's going to be fine let's let's all focus on positive solutions but we don't address the the dark sort of problematic stuff Mm. um I don't think it'll be as effective. So yeah, it's 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 been a really interesting time just kind of going into all that and um yeah, a lot more to discover. Well, there's been time, hasn't there? We've all had the chance to truly unpick what our foundations look like as individuals, as small communities, as states, as the globe. We've really had the chance to actually genuinely look at the truth of the way we live. Mm, mm. And what we do with that now will remain to be seen. And I wonder whether or not, you know, as we kind of navigate the unlocking of the globe again because that will inevitably be over the next couple of years whether or not there will be more people that have the confidence to say no I don't want to unlock and go back to the way we were I do want to unlock but I want to go back to it something that looks different my vision looks different and I want us to be able to openly talk about what our different visions are and and come to a different place Mm. yeah I think there'll be a lot of that and and I think they're already is in in a lot of ways and again it might be subtle at the moment i mean i think being in i mean for most people i guess you know especially in victoria being in a, in a home household based sort of personal lockdown it, it starts with the personal and then it, it branches out to the commute to the societal so it'll be really interesting to see what that transition looks like once everyone is quote unquote unlocked really? <laughs> um but yeah, I'd, I'd say we'll be, we'll be seeing some pretty radical um, changes in, in the way the world works. And, you know, for the better, I think, a, a lot of the time. If, if people can still have a sense of agency and power to bring about change from the personal, you know, there, there is a lot of push, I guess, in these times to... Um, you know, there, there is in, in times of crisis, there's, there's a lot of tendency to sort of lean towards figures of authority and and larger structures that can, can say like yes don't worry people we've got this under control but i still think we need to retain that sense of like we can create a movement you know as people mm. and um what that'll look like i don't know i mean it's it's a tough time for activism at the moment you know people want to protest illegal forest logging in um you know around here and and you can't have gatherings so like what's the solution to that um Things like Extinction Rebellion were, were flourishing before the pandemic, and now what's the what's the new normal for that kind of stuff? Hopefully, it, it trickles into the systemic sort of government and corporate sectors, and, and real change starts to happen at that level. But I still think there needs to be this like, okay, people, you know, we can do it. Keep keep doing the change, keep pushing, 
and uh, just sort of living living the life that you want to lead and showing that that's possible. Um, I guess it's just been it's a lot more bird, sedentary. Birds in the background. Are you outside? I am outside. I love I love yeah. being out in the fresh air. The last few months has been really relaxing. It's sort of this routine of, okay, wake up, you know, go and take out the goats and feed the chickens and then go and check in with David Holmgren and get a walk around the garden and hear all the amazing knowledge that he has to just give any given moment. And then, uh, you know, go and dig some garden beds or plant some veggies and maybe come back in the afternoon, have a nice lunch that's grown like 95% on the property where I'm living <laughs> and then go to the, the tiny house truck and record some music and then, you know, retire to a, a nice book in the evening. It's, it's, it, it sounds disgustingly idyllic. And um, <laughs> and it is. <laughs> but um, yeah, you're you not know, doing I, a whole lot. You're proliferating the romantic bullshit that life on the land is actually bucolic and and pretty much rather than pretty hard much. work. <laughs> but you know what? I, I'm I'm just owning it, and I'm like, look, this is great. If if I have to live this life so that I can then spout to the world how amazing it is, so be it. Like I can definitely so do that it. now, 100. percent This is the bomb. <laughs> You'll take that for the team. Yeah. And everyone, you know, more people, it's not just me that could do it. Like we can, we can all kind of create systems to make this possible for, for way more people than just, uh, you know, privileged <laughs> country dwellers in Victoria. I am aware that a lot of people don't necessarily have those choices. Um, but in saying that permaculture is, is interesting because I, I feel it, it makes possible certain privileges that other systems don't. And so our institutionalized systems of governance and, and corporate structures that, you know, sometimes deliberately go out of their way to make sure that systemic inequity exists, permaculture kind of seeks to, to do the opposite. And it's not saying that, hey, everyone can live this life right now, just walk out your door and do permaculture and everything would be great. But it's, it's that there's a movement of people globally, worldwide, working towards this common goal of hey, if we start designing our systems around these three ethics of earth care, people care and fair share and using these guidelines, these, these pointers of the, the 12 permaculture principles, then maybe, just maybe, we'll get to a point where, you know, we all live in a system that people can have access to these, these amazing ways of life. Yeah, and, and it's, it's a tough one because, you know, when you're living at David Holmgren's place and it's been established for 35 years and it is the best practice example of like peak permaculture that we know of it's like well cool this is the end game i could just relax and enjoy life but it's actually you know it's that uh that thing of like the, the buddhist concept of um is it samsara where you know you go to the cave to meditate and get enlightened but then realize that everyone else out there still needs to get enlightened so you better get out there and keep doing the work <laughs> it's sort of like yeah. This can't be the end point. We've got to actually, you know, sure, enjoy it and learn from it, but then keep getting it out there. Keep trying to change and keep trying to uh, help people to to become empowered. And you're pushing against a very strong tide in the opposite direction. So you've got to have a willingness to step off the churning treadmill that is pulling you to the left and very mm. comfortably moved. Well, I shouldn't have used left and right then. That is not the intention <laughs> of my words. But, you know, in a different direction, what you, you're actively needing to say, I don't choose that. I choose something else. And with it comes intentional simplicity because it has to be the reality. But in order for others to have access to these opportunities, then I need to be aware of what I need to change as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's exactly it. Like I've always been pulled to the different direction, whether you know, <laughs> saving mm-hmm. saving a specific of direction, um, and that's where <laughs> that's where growing up in the bush, I think, really helped because it was this, uh, it was this kind of fringy, edgy place to grow up, and and it did cop a lot of backlash from you know my school friends and peers in town who were you know quote unquote normal living normal lives in town and I was the sort of weird hippie kid out in the bush and um, so getting a sense of that sort of marginalization or that edge dwelling that uh, that so many people around the world experience you know as a as a young white male I think was really valuable it's not you know it's not saying that I experience the whole spectrum of, of um, you know of disadvantage that so many people do but it was a taste of of just being a bit different and and getting that sense of empathy for for others who who may be sort of a bit marginalized or pushed to the fringes and and also that that's where I wanted to be it's like hey you know what we all need to go out to the fringes a bit and explore you know broaden our horizons mm. that's kind of that's kind of where the change is going to happen if if we can all do that if if everyone in the in the sort of first world just broadened broadened their horizons a bit and and pushed the edges and valued the marginal it would make a better world for everyone mm. and even so, though it feels a little like it may be uncomfortable mm. maybe our role is to push to the edge of that comfort boundary totally yeah yeah so you founded um, Grow Do It Permaculture Education, which is a Facebook page that is rapidly growing and really active. I'm on it pretty regularly as well. Cool. Um, do you feel like, I mean, I feel like these sorts of little concepts are popping up all over the place at the moment. Do you feel like there's been this groundswell in the last six to 12 months that we haven't yet seen? I remember having a conversation with David Holmgren once about the, the way in which permaculture has flourished and he said it flourishes when we are in uh, times of destitution or or difficulty because people see it as an alternative approach do you feel like this has been just another one of those waves or do you feel like we're starting to get to a place where there's a foundation in place that can actually hold i think the foundation has been in place for a while but it's a it's a small foundation but i think it's growing now like the last few months has been pretty you know, to use the word of the year, unprecedented. Um, <laughs> the uh, yeah, as trend. soon as we're good, <laughs> so trending right now. <laughs> as soon as the pandemic kind of was declared, um, yeah, Dave, Dave and Sue noticed a massive upscale in interest in their books, and mm. we noticed uh, a huge surge in in interest in our art and music. So, you know, from from our perspective, it's been great, but it's also just indicating that so many people are looking for alternatives, and the fact that that, that we've been kind of just plodding away doing this for the past seven years is really kind of aff- affirming that that it was the right thing to do because now so many people are coming you know to, to our Facebook group and to you know to us with questions and we're like hey cool we've got the answers or we have some of the answers or we know where to look for the answers mm, and so you're having... building a community that can between us solve the answers yeah. or find a solution yep yeah, and and having that foundation has really helped. Like if we were just kind of thrown into this with no clue about permaculture or regenerative culture or you know any of the solutions, we'd just be like scrambling to find an answer. And that's when you just kind of look for the nearest thing that's lying around. I mean, who was it that said that you know never let a good crisis go to waste? I mean, it's yeah. I think it was some terrible 
accountant or economist, but in, in some ways, the positive of that is that if you have positive solutions, people will, will come to them because they know they exist. And yeah, having the, the Grow Do It education Facebook page has been kind of proof of that as well. And teachers, especially when, when homeschooling, you know, when all the schools kind of got shut down and uh, parents and, and educators were trying to go online and people were trying to teach wow. from home, we just had a huge amount of interest in like, where can I find permaculture education yeah. uh, content, you know? And, and there wasn't, I mean, I know it's out there, but there wasn't like a, a hub for people sharing content. And we knew a whole lot of teachers, you know, I, I've known teachers all over the world who, who teach this stuff in just little little community schools or in, you know, in their classrooms in, in a government school or whatever. But we, Brent and I put our heads together and we're like, right, well, who do we know? Let's connect yeah. them. And, and that was just one way that we thought to do it. And, and we've also started creating teaching resources with our art and, and music to kind of try and just distill that a bit further. So yeah, it's, it's been pretty, uh, it's been pretty vindicating, I guess. The, you know, sometimes you just think, oh, am I doing the right thing? Am I on the right track? And right now we've never been busier. So it's... Yeah, you've really been the litmus test. I've, I've kind of watched it really closely to, in my own mind, use it as that vindicating litmus test to, to see whether or not people are getting on board tokenistically or whether they're getting on and really embracing it. And the interaction has been really indicative that people are not just there to kind of observe voyeuristically but to actually get in and, and nut out some of the problems and the challenges that, and the solutions that mm. we've all come up with together. I want to ask you about community because yeah. – um, you know, you're attracted to a transient existence and you uh, have your music, which is a, a really solid backstop for you. And then the permies, so my kids call us the permies all the time and I always <laughs> think, no, we're not just that. We're so much more than that. But they say, no, no, you wear the permie uniform and the, the, you sort of <laughs> beat for that permie tribal beat. And so I, I say that to you like do you feel like you are still building community or do you feel like you've got these other kind of transient communities that hold you or like what does community mean for you yeah that's a really good question um i've thought a lot about that over the past decade or more and community means a lot of different things i think i have a lot of communities and i think i i like having a lot of communities, a lot of diverse communities. You know, some people are, are more comfortable in a, in a solid kind of community group where, you know, like like-minded people that, that they get along with. I really get a kick out of kind of different points of view and different contexts and different situations. You know, I suppose being the traveler, it's you're always in different situations and, um, and getting a sense of, of, oh, how do these people live versus how do these people live and how can I slot into this situation just kind of gives me a bit of a kick. At the same time, I've, I've often had these recurring sort of bouts of homesickness, such as, you know, recently I've, I've been kind of just feeling the pull of WA and, and not being able to be there has been really hard. And, and there's something about growing up on a piece of land um, your whole life. I mean, we moved to Pemberton in the southwest of WA when I was five or six, and uh, I planted a circle of trees with my dad, um, carry trees that are 
that are the local endemic species down there. Beautiful rainforest, well, sort of wet sclerophyll forest tree, sort of like the mountain ash. And uh, they're some of the tallest trees in the world. And we planted a big circle of them by the house. And uh, they grew up over the last 30 odd years into this little sort of gathering space. And then over the years, we started a festival. On my 30th birthday, I started a festival, uh, just a small gathering of people for a, for a birthday party. But then it was so good that next year we did it again. The next year we did it again. And um, it's it's been going for six years or seven no, this will be the eighth year this time. And every time, every year at this time of year, I, I go home and I try and spend at least, you know, at least four, three or four months at home and sometimes more. Last year I managed six, which was incredible. Um, <laughs> but <clears throat> yeah, there, there's, and, and that kind of, that's sort of like a little circling of the wagons, I guess, of all of my WA community and and traveler community from around the country who happened to be in the area at the time. But it's such a grounding experience. And and this year, yeah, really nurturing. And there's something something to be said for for having that deep, deeper connection to a place. And I think ultimately that's that's what we all yearn for, you know, especially in in the permaculture scene, you know, the permi the the permi tribe uh, you know I'm, I'm not so much about creating tribes as as just kind of working with where you are and what you have and who's around and finding out what that community looks like because i think tribalism has a tendency to be a bit exclusive sometimes um a bit clicky. yeah yeah but but the thing that i've loved about this festival is that it's just it's just whoever kind of is in my life from from uh you know the past from whatever living arrangements I've had from living in Fremantle for 15 years to the Southwest to, you know, the sort of hippies in Denmark who live off grid and in eco villages and, and all these people that I love, but who are from really different backgrounds kind of coming together in this single event. And it's, um, you know, we have workshops and music and yeah, I, this is the first year I'm going to miss it. And I'm just really, really mm, yeah, struggling that with that at the moment. Yeah, yeah, it's really I'm just feeling it in my chest right now. And um so I think yeah, that's that's the community that I really yearn for. And there is there is the ability to get that over here, but I think I think community comes for, with place and time. The longer shared experiences. The place. Yeah, and shared experiences. But that's something I think that's language just, too makes a, is a part of that. I think when you start to understand each other's language and the intonation and the words that you use and mm. the way in which you present concepts, I think is also a really part, of, big part of that. Yeah, yeah. It's like when you're growing up and you have sort of your own secret language with your siblings or something. It's yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it yeah. kind of emerges yeah. as well. Mm. You touched on something, Charlie, that I wanted to ask about um, in terms of travelling around and being able to appreciate different points of view and slot in and maybe experience just another lens. And sometimes I read Retro Suburbia and I close the book and I think, okay, great, all the problems are solved. This is all (laughs) I need. This is the information that everyone needs in their life. And I have that sense Mm -hmm. that we actually need open-mindedness and to appreciate that 
other people, you know, there's so many different circumstances out there and realities and being able to meet people and understand that their values are probably the same as ours, but it might look not like retro suburbia. It might look more like some kind of dystopian mm-hmm. um, sci-fi thriller. But how do you stay open-minded <laughs> even when you have such strong beliefs around permaculture and how wonderful this can be as a tool for people to live a more regenerative lifestyle? Like what's your approach to uh, seeking out new look- ideas? Sometimes I, I feel like I'm so open-minded that my brain's about to fall out. Um, <laughs> Shut the I, gate. Close the walls. <laughs> really, it, it's like this kind of, you know, overstimulating kind of <laughs> floodgate. But I really, I really put a lot of value on staying open-minded. And in this, in this current climate, it's, it's so challenging to do that sometimes because there are so many different ideologies flying around and so many different worldviews and so much... Uh, input and content flying around the the online spheres and, and the social spheres. I mean, I, I, I just sort of come back to the local more and more. I, I think, you know, whatever worldview we can kind of develop in our local context, if we listen and really work with the people where we are, then, you know, we, we have much a much better chance of creating that, that strong sense of community. That books like retro suburbia and, and permaculture uh kind of promote and yeah it's not about it's not about promoting a dogma it's not about being like hey everyone become permaculturist i mean i don't even know what a permaculturist is is, is it someone who's just mm-hmm. read bill mollison and david holmgren i don't know done a permaculture design course it's actually yeah it's just a label that we use for for a, a certain way of seeing the world and and that way of seeing the world can take so many different forms and i've just been i've been reading a lot of charles eisenstein lately and uh and really going into this idea of uh interbeing where you know a a lot of indigenous cultures sort of recognize that you know humans aren't the be all and end all which surprise surprise is looking more and more like the case and and that really drives me to to want to listen more and to to not want to talk as much so ironic i've been talking for 45 minutes straight now but um (laughs) but to listen not just to to our human community but to our non-human community as well and when you start doing that well for one you're never alone there's there's so many more friends out there that you that you never realized you had um but there's also so many friendships that need maintenance and you know for us to for us to connect with our plant friends and our microbial friends and our you know all all those who live in the soil and all those who grow in the canopy and and animals sort of living in the habitats it's like you know I'm kind of only just beginning as a you know as a western Australian as a, as a privileged sort of white Westerner to get a sense of what that might be like to see all of life as equal to myself. And, um, you know, that's the ultimate open-mindedness if you think about it, because you have to be open to every perspective beyond your own. Uh, there is, there is no, there is no one right way to see the world. And, uh, as as someone who's almost definitely on the neuro neurodiverse spectrum, um, <laughs> I, I experience that every day, and you know, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful part of the human experience that we can 
sort of be a part of that and be open to listening. But if we close ourselves off and if we become sort of stuck in our ways and dig in our heels, it just makes life harder for everybody, like mm. including the person who has the, 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 the ideals, probably more than anyone else. I mean. <laughs> yeah, it's harder at the time, I think, to listen and respond in real time and to be in the unfolding, which feels kind of scary and there's no formula. But what you might be saying is that it is better in the long run because we can respond, um, I guess, and have the appropriate response, you know, second to second rather than trying to apply something that just doesn't really fit anybody mm. um or is an off-the-shelf solution yeah. yeah 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 i think off-the-shelf solutions are just off the shelf <laughs> from now that's on. right but not for anyone They're yeah for everyone but not for anyone yeah and that's the risk you know of, of being of being someone who gets up and has a strong message and is like hey this is the way to go folks check this out you know there is a strong risk of being interpreted as an ideologue and of someone who has all the answers and then people are like show us the way and you know the last thing i want to be is some kind of guru figure you know who who pretends to have all the answers because i don't and no. sometimes probably more more times than some the best option is instead of to respond or instead of to spout an opinion is to just listen and to just tune in and that's something that I find really hard to do. And I think our culture finds really hard to do, especially in this time of amplified everything. There's more and more pressure to have an answer now. You know, come on, state your case, state your position, state the answer, give us the solution. And it's counterintuitive in, in this way of thinking that's like, we need to save the world. But the, the, so many problems have been caused by people trying to save the world. You know, Monsanto's business uh you know slogan is like feeding the world and you know have they done that <laughs> i don't think so yeah. Yeah, um yeah, yeah. it's you know so it's not to say like oh monsanto are evil and they're run by a bunch of reptilian whatevers it's like there's probably heaps of good people who think they're doing an amazing thing under this under this saving the world sort of umbrella yeah um yeah. and and i I don't, I don't see myself as being immune to that you know if if i go down the same path of like i'm saving the world then you know give me a big enough platform and then something terrible could go wrong <laughs> i just think we have thing. To... yeah we're rewarded yeah. aren't we for having a brand having an ideology having something that we can have put into yeah. a really catchy little mnemonic and um yeah what <laughs> what the truth is is if we sit back and we're kind of more complex and utterly boring no one really wants to hang out with us and like our stuff yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's it and you know i think the truth is local if there's if there's one slogan that's just running around my head at the moment it's that it's if we if we get our context with the people who are in our immediate environments sorted then that'll make life a lot easier for for uh yeah and don't scale community. yeah i heard a businesswoman yeah. say the other day she was like if someone says to you increase your productivity efficiency and scale up run run in the opposite direction yeah. because it's anti-human yeah. like we're not made for scale yeah you know what? I I listened I, I listen to a lot of ABC Radio National and I want them to change their slogan. They think bigger. I think there needs to be think local. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a whole that paradigm. Mean you can think smaller. You can no. still think bigger. Actually, I've just written this um 
thing in my book that talks about thinking globally, acting locally, mm. because you actually need to think big. You need to see what all these other amazing places are doing because they just might have a similarity with something that is relevant to your little patch, your little mm. part of the world. And it's really important that we, we continue to learn from each other and seek other people's advice and guidance and bring our solutions heads to the table as one, mm. but but not and not be narrow-minded, but maybe not be so open-minded that it's overwhelming. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we kind of need to think global, and I don't mean globalization. I mean, I mean, think big, but act local is possibly yeah. a, a profoundly powerful thing to do. Yeah, and that starts with broadening our our perspective on, you know, what is what is a community you know these questions that we've been been covering is like what is um where do we fit and i suppose globally you know we think of globally in terms of nation states or the you know the, the biosphere or or the climate i mean arguably there's there's more life in a in a spoonful of soil than there is in I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to figure out what the analogy is that I'm making, but but there are there are entire yeah. entire worlds, entire globes worth of of um, knowledge and wisdom to be found within our local world. And yes, definitely, um, you know, outreach to people in other contexts and far off places. I mean, that's how the permaculture movement has been sustained. And the fact that there are, you know, every continent on the globe has an active permaculture movement is fantastic but they're all expressed in ways that are relevant so to their local concept yeah yeah so so to get yeah i see what you're saying to get this sort of this overarching um understanding of our our common our commonality and our universal mm. um you know tendencies or or, or or natures to apply to our local concept is is yeah. the goal i guess and just keep the inspiration and the ideas fresh and the um, the desire to endlessly learn is okay. Yeah, and that's why I love music. You know, that's that's why to me music is the ultimate universal language because mm. it, it really does trans transcend spoken language and, and words. I mean, even if it contains words, like the emotion of music has a power all of its own and it's something that every culture bar, you know, a very few minority have had in common um so i think you know music and the arts yeah, have a power in, in bringing today. people together and also just contextualize i mean that's that's the other thing i i struggle with is this idea of um intellectual property and i know that's a big one at the moment because you know copyright laws and stuff are being rewritten all the time and within the music scene there's this there's this drive to like you know copyright your music and, and monetize everything and and keep it sort of behind the gatekeepers but in some ways i just want my music to be free man <laughs> well, <laughs> I, no, I noticed on your website that you have look if it's for something small and something intimate then bloody go for it use it as you wish and, yeah, and change it and rewrite it or translate it or turn it into your own song but it's it's tough now being being part of a record label which is part of the music yeah. industry I'm finding myself having to sort of mould into these, mm. yeah, into this sort of existing system. And I, I guess I'll see how that unfolds. But, you know, the reasoning behind that was to get it out to a, to a larger audience. But, um, you know, there might be some scope to sort of push back and, and change systemically maybe in the future. Who knows? 
<laughs> or even not systemically, but at least for you, tweak it to kind of suit your ideology. Yeah, yeah. And what about the regenerative power of creativity? I, I feel I've read that somewhere, maybe on your site, or maybe it's your upcoming talks. Well, creativity is how we imagine the world. I mean, I heard someone say recently that the world we currently live in is just the delusion of someone that's they had, you know, hundreds of years ago that a bunch of people agreed on. And that's why the world is like it is today. There is, you know, nothing saying that we can't have our own collective delusions and create a world that's entirely different from this one and arguably more functional. Um, and creativity is where that begins, you know, writing stories, singing songs, drawing pictures. That's how we as humans imagine where we've come from and where we're going. And I mean, that that's why designers are, are I guess, so value, valued in, you know, in our culture is because they are the ones who, who imagine the world into existence. You know, a designer draws a picture of a, a building and then next minute there's a building and, you know, there's a whole slew of things that happens between those two points. But the creativity, uh, the creative process for me just lets me, lets my imagination run wild and lets me just go to the most far out places as far as like the, the beautiful world that I want to see um, <laughs> goes and, and just speak, speak that and say, Hey, well, here's an idea. Let's see what happens. And putting it out there, you never know what's going to happen with it. You just have to kind mm, of having have... the gumption to put it out there is what takes the courage. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. You've got to just have a certain degree of recklessness, I think, to be creative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Um, and look, if you can get up in a wherever the heck you were with a whole stack of hard yakka, high vis, <laughs> clad lads, and and jump around with your uke and present some permaculture concepts via a, a tinkling tune, I reckon that ought to be enough <laughs> inspiration for the rest of us to have a small crack. Yeah, and um, I highly recommend it because it's such a liberating. Um, process and 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 you know it, it's like the court jester you know it gives you social license to say stuff that you wouldn't otherwise get away with i mean if you say something through a song people are like oh that's a nice song but if you if you get up on your soapbox and do a lecture some people are like that's outrageous um so you know 10 years ago i was singing about peak oil which for some reason isn't a thing anymore but um you know that was a that was a pretty like outrageous concept to people in the oil and gas industry but there they were tapping their feet along to a song and uh-huh. um and, you know, over the years, people have come up and said, oh, wow, that song really made me think about my fossil fuel usage and, and sort of just, just, just pushing change a little, little by little. And, you know, on, on, a, on a sort of deeper level, the role of creativity in shaping our culture is, is huge and has been historically for thousands of years. I mean, in this country, you know, probably more than any, and, you know, Indigenous people sung the world into existence. And, and that's not in a metaphorical sense, uh, even though sort of most things we say are metaphors, but but in a very kind of tangible way. Um, and I, I read, you know, about sort of the the song lines and things in Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu and, and more recently in Lynn Kelly's uh, Memory Code. Uh, song lines were used as a way to encode memory in the landscape mm. and inversely, you know, interact with that landscape and, and uh alter it in ways that would support humans and, and every other sort of form of life. So um, 
there's this this other great book I've just read called The Patterning Instinct by Jeremy Lent, which goes into how human culture and uh, you know our cultural history has actually uh, the the meaning that we give to the world actually gives the world its its form and it's 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 like a two way thing. It's not just oh we here we are just looking at this objective reality. It's like no, we're actually we're actively creating this reality every day of our lives with uh, with the things that we say and do and create. And so, it in um, return is actually nuancing the way in which we respond and react equally. Yeah, yeah. So it's that listening and then responding. Observe and interact. That's uh, permaculture principle number one. <laughs> I feel know? like if everyone who loves the secret could just switch over to permaculture manifestation. Oh, I know. <laughs> How bad was that book? Oh. <laughs> I never got Did my red bike. Your green car. It's like, yeah, <laughs> we're almost there, bike. but nah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, look, if you had one thing to say, I feel like we've we've kind of absorbed your brain and given you the <laughs> You're probably exhausted and thinking you're done on talking. But um, if you had one thing to leave our listeners with that just kind of gave us the the gumption to take a deep breath and challenge ourselves and put ourselves out there and do one thing, what would it be? Go hug a tree. (laughs) (laughs) Go hug a tree, hug all the microbes in that tree, all the fungi and bacteria that are in the soil underneath that tree, all the animals who don't hug the little birds because they'll probably crush them. But, you know, go give a nice big metaphorical hug to every living thing that you can see, even if you're in the middle of the city in a you know apartment building, there's got to, there's something that's going to be alive other than you. You can just go and just imagine what it's like to be that thing, and um, you know that might give you a little bit more of a perspective on on where we can go from here. Thanks, Charlie. I'm off to hug a tree and contemplate what my local story looks like. Next week, we're going to introduce you to the social entrepreneur, Beck Scott, who's the co-founder of the Street Enterprises in Melbourne. I say plural enterprises because there's 17 of them. And if you've never heard of the term social entrepreneur, but it's plucked your curiosity, then next week really will be a must for you because not only will she enlighten us all as to what that means, but her high energy is going to fill your mind with myriad new ideas for living like tomorrow matters. Speaking of tomorrow, Katie and I are trialling something new. If you love our weekly future steading chats, and so many of you do, thanks so much for your beautiful texts and emails and messages that come via all means of communication, we'd love for you to show us your support by shouting us a cuppa. It would just be a few dollars a week and it's not compulsory at all, but it would help cover our recording costs, hosting fees, you know, the occasional snack, because let's be honest, these hard-hitting interviews that we churn out every week require fuel. We're really, really thankful to have you as part of our beautiful and growing community and we would really love to keep these honest and downright human conversations coming. It's not tricky. It's as simple as uh, finding us on buymeacoffee.com forward slash futuresteading, which has also been included at the bottom of all of the pod's um, show notes. And with that, we would love to express a massive amount of gratitude. Um, So we will see you next week.